everyone. Uh, good to be together and, and worship the Lord and be before His Word as well. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley, I'm one of the pastors here, and, and we are going through a series in Genesis. Uh, today we'll be in chapter 3. The title of the message is Throwing Shade, and if you're under the age of 30, you probably know immediately what that means. Uh, it's to basically uh, speak disparagingly of somebody in a kind of subtle, deceitful way. Uh, and so this is, is about throwing shade where the devil throws shade at God, uh, and we'll learn about that. So some of you can understand what that means. Others are like, oh, that's an interesting phrase. I have to go look at that up later. But anyhow, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3 today. Um, this uh, last week, actually, uh, the award-winning and controversial celebrity Madonna gave the following introduction at the 2023 Grammy Awards. Here's what she said. Here's what I've learned after four decades in music. If they call you shocking, scandalous, troublesome, problematic, provocative, or dangerous, you're definitely onto something. I'm here to give thanks to all the rebels out there forging a new path and taking the heat for all of it. All you troublemakers out there need to know that your fearlessness does not go unnoticed. You are seen, you are heard, and most of all, you are appreciated. So now, speaking of controversy, it gives me great pleasure to introduce two incredibly talented artists who have risen above the noise, the doubt, the critics, into something beautifully unholy. Here are two Grammy Award winners, Sam Smith and Kim Petras, and, and then introduce the act. Now, I don't share that because I have animosity towards Madonna nor because I have any other recommendation regarding the music scene than to actively and wisely engage and enjoy it as a follower of Jesus. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But I, I share the quote because of what she said and its implications. Yet I think it's an illustration of the sort of speech we're going to encounter today, the sort of speech that mixes things and confuses things and, and therefore, whether intentionally or not, deceives. Her statement implies uh, that artistry, progressiveness, and creativity necessitate and are even synonymous with scandal, rebellion, and trouble. It celebrates these negative qualities as keys to greater autonomy and a greater future. Now indeed, rebellion has its place when it's rebellion against the evil. But Madonna is more or less advocating an intrepid rebellion against what's good. And she's implying that that is a pathway to a better humanity. Again, I don't know her motives and her thought process in this, but that's what I take as I listen to her live, actually, in this quote. And more relevant to us today is what she says and what I think is something that sounds very familiar. Today we will visit uh, one of the most influential moments in history when mankind first believed and embraced this sort of dangerous persuasion that rebellion is freedom and the scandalous is beautiful. This passage today will teach us a lot about the nature of sin and deception and therefore our desperate need to be rescued and restored to something that is truly much better. So let's pray as we prepare to hear God's word and learn these things. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word that we might perceive things and understand truth. And that, Lord, through this, ultimately, by the discernment you grant, we could escape the corruption and the harm that that is in sin and evil. We thank you for the provision of that in Christ and and your word that, that teaches us about our situation and gives a true analysis and then directs us ultimately to the only cure. So I pray as we hear your word today and as I teach, would we understand our predicaments more clearly and more personally? And would we run to Jesus more convinced of our need and of the complete rescue that he provides? Help us now. Be here with us, our Lord God, we pray by the power of your Spirit. And in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But... The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God's word from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I just want to walk through this passage today and learn about it. Uh, This passage teaches us about the reality of sin, an important thing to understand, uh, this reality of the fall of humanity. We've been learning about the creation of humanity and and, uh, its high calling and wonderful privilege. And here in this section and following, we learn about the fall of humanity and the introduction and the nature of sin. What I think we'll learn through this is that sin, uh, sin deceives and kills us. Sin deceives and kills us. And, And implicitly in this, it's to drive us to God's solution. So while sin deceives and kills us, God's answer is that 
Jesus rescues and restores us. So I want to talk about that. Sin deceives and kills us. Jesus rescues and restores us. So we're just going to walk through the passage and then we're going to see where it directs us by implication uh, to Christ. So first, we meet the serpent. He's a new character in the storyline. He is more crafty than any other beast of the field. There's a wordplay going on here that we miss in English. The word crafty uh, sounds almost like the word for naked. And just before here, it talks about the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Uh, they were innocent before God and one another. They could, they could be comfortable in that state because of, of their innocence and, and their, their relationship with God, their, their righteousness, their life in God. And so it finishes with that word, and then it says the serpent is more crafty. It's almost the same word. It's only a vowel different, arom versus arom. Uh, they almost sound exactly the same. There's a wordplay going on here to contrast the situation. We're going from this idyllic situation with the man and the woman in perfect fellowship with one another and with God in this state of innocence and, and resting and relying on God to this crafty serpent. Serpent is crafty, he's sneaky, he's wily, he's street smart, and he has, uh, there's no indication of a, of a relationship of dependence on Yahweh God. He's an enemy of God, ultimately, we see in this. Versus the man and the woman at this point, naked, unashamed, innocent, clothed, and protected in God's love and righteousness. Now, of course, we find out later in the story of the Bible uh, the, the, this library we call the Bible, that this is no ordinary lizard or snake. This is the serpent, the great enemy of God's people, the fallen angel Lucifer, Beelzebub, the chief of demons taking the form of an animal we see in Revelation chapter 12. It speaks of him. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this enemy, this serpent, in his craftiness here, entraps Eve in deception. Notice what's going on here. Notice the kind of what's happening in the storyline. And especially in light of what we've seen earlier, God creates uh, creation. He fills creation. He he puts order to creation. He fills all these realms. And then he puts mankind over creation. It's to be this cosmic temple, as we've learned about. And the garden especially is a place of, of, of the man and the woman to live, to be his kings and priests, and to, to fellowship with God and preside over all the animals. The order we've learned about, right, is God, the great creator, with mankind in his image under him, uh, representing him on the earth, imaging him. And then there's an order within mankind of the man as the head, the woman as the helper in this divinely uh, ordered design. And then they're over the animals, right? That's the order. God, man, and then among man, man and the woman, and then over the animals. But what's going on in our story in chapter 3? We have an animal going to the woman who's going to lead the man, and through that is going to undermine God. So there's a reversal of the order here that, that is in the storyline that we should be aware of. There's, there's a deception going on. There's a strategy going on to ultimately undermine the Lord, but to do it by reversing God's order. There's lots of lessons in that. Satan knows what he's doing here. He knows how to get at God and God's plans. 
through going to the woman. And he comes to her with a question, right? It seems like maybe it's an honest question. He asks her. He starts with a question. It, it just, it's an inquiry, right? Just wondering. Just wondering. Been wondering. Did God actually say? We might say in, in our uh, colloquial English, did God really say? Did He really say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's the simple, plain answer to that? No. But there's more going on than a simple question here, right? There's, there's the, it's a veiled accusation. Um, it's that sort of question that gets phrased in a way where you, you, know, you can't answer it without, without indicting the, the person. It's maybe like if you were to say, is it really true that Tom Brady cheated in every single game he played in? That's what I, is that true? Sorry, I, I, some people are very offended right now, but... Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other, just so you know. But there's obvious, that's not an innocent question. There's an implication there, right? You can't really answer that without somehow acknowledging what you, well, what, what's being said. So, sorry to distract you guys. I know where some people's minds are going at this point. But. That's what's going on here, though. That's what's going on. The serpent is asking that sort of question of God. There's something being implied here. And the, the implication is that God is some sort of ridiculous tyrant who made this garden full of, of amazing trees all around and then cruelly prohibited her from eating any of them. What sort of God would do this thing? And so it's this subtle deception getting Eve to, to contemplate, maybe even just to some degree, maybe there's some truth to this question, I guess, thing. We should be careful of questions. Even innocent questions uh, can have a twist. And there can be these sort of questions that come to our own minds and our own fallenness at times that, 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 that undermine and call into question the character of God. They often come amidst the temptations and trials of life, right? The disappointments of life where our flesh, and even the devil at times perhaps, want us to question God and His goodness. This question of why is this happening? And though there might be an honest inquiry, and there's an aspect in Scripture, of course we're to ask and to receive those answers. There can also be an implication that we have even in our questioning that somehow something's wrong with God. That He somehow isn't perfectly good. And yet, he is perfectly good in the story. We know that. We've seen enough. He is perfectly good in the story here in creation. He is shown to be perfectly good in the story of redemption, laying his own life down for us to rescue us from our sin, to love us, to redeem us for all those that would receive such good news. He's done more than enough to show us his goodness. And yet, in trials and hardship, we can question and think somehow he's not good enough. He should have prevented this. What is he doing? He mustn't know what he's doing. So the same sort of deceptions and questions can occur to us at times. And the answer, just like it would be in the text, would have been for Eve to revisit the truth of God's goodness in his creation. Thanksgiving is a powerful answer to those doubts, to remember how God has been good to us in creation. 
How God has been and will be good to us in creation. How God has been and will be good to us even more profoundly and wonderfully in redemption. Giving up His own life as God the Son in our stead to rescue us. And giving us eternal life in Him. Using all things for good and all those other promises and truths to thank God for those things. To come back and to reset our mindset away from the deception. Well, in the story, that doesn't happen, sadly. Eve doesn't see that there are countless trees in that garden, that she has free and full, continual access to the tree of life to provide healing and the life that is real life. This sacramental experience of the life of God is right there for her to access and enjoy all the time. She can eat from all the trees except for one. God has told Adam and Eve, They can enjoy all these things, but there is one tree they are not to eat of. One simple, small, doable request to abstain from that one tree as a simple affirmation of their faith in God and their love for Him and His ways. Just a way to express that in their covenant with God. To simply do that. But the devil comes in and undermines this. And Eve begins to see things wrongly right away because we can tell from her answer to the the serpent at this point. Her answer is a little bit twisted. It isn't quite the truth. Notice, as uh, I'll read it again, she said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Have we seen God say that anywhere yet? No. She's no longer seeing things clearly. She's been captured to some degree by the subtle deception of the devil here. She is prohibited now in her mind from eating the tree in the midst of the garden. But the tree in the midst of the garden, if you look earlier, is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree of life. So her description of the the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it's taking on a prominence in the story that the tree of life is supposed to take to have. Now it's the tree in the midst of the garden. It's this important tree now. It's more important than the tree of life, perhaps, in her mind. And she adds to it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. I assume they could touch it all they want. They could climb the tree if they wanted to. But they were not to eat of the fruit of the tree, simply. They were to trust God and and depend on Him. And so things are getting warped. There's deception happening. And and we learn about the nature of sin here. That sin is basically a deception. Sin, the uh, disobedience to God, not following His ways, not believing Him and following Him, involves deception. Sin is always an attack against the character of God. It's always a denial of His perfect goodness and His perfect ways. It's always a choosing of something else that seems better than God in His ways. That's what goes on in sin, always. We are doubting and defaming God. Sin is intensely personal against God. Because we are denying His character, His faithfulness. It's an insult to His character and to His goodness and His prerogative to rule over all things as the perfectly good and glorious one. 
Sin is chiefly against God, and that's where it dwells, where God is maligned and disbelieved. And so that's what's going on with Eve. That's what goes on in our own lives as we give in to sin. Well, the serpent continues. He takes it to another level. He knows that Eve is falling forward. He's, she's ripe for the next step. And so now he directly contradicts what God said. He says, you will not surely die. He's uh, made enough progress with her that he's ready to make that assertion. And now he goes even deeper. He directly impugns God's motives. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is afraid of you and your potentiality here. He knows that, that if you eat of this, he, that you will be like God. You will know good and evil. He doesn't want that. He's a, afraid of you self-actualizing who you're meant to be. That's kind of what he's saying directly. That somehow God is this pathetic, fearful tyrant. It's very ridiculous. But isn't it what we think at times? Now the terrible irony of all this is that they already are like God. They're not God, but they're like God because they're made in the image of God. Mankind is, is the most like a God being there is. We image God. We are not God. We'll never be God. But we are like God. We are made in His image. And we're called to image Him. That, that's part of our identity. We're made in His image. We're made for relationship with Him. And... The irony of it as well is they already know good and evil because God told them it. What's the good? Enjoy all these things. Live in my creation. Represent me. Fill the earth. Subdue it. What's evil? Eating that fruit. That's what's evil. Don't do that. Trust me. The very tree that is in dispute here is not so much a source of the knowledge of good and evil uh, it is of a sort, but it is a test of true, the true knowledge of good and evil. Because good and evil is not self-determined, it's determined by what God says. So there's irony, there's this terrible irony here going on, it's a horrible irony, like something out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie or M. Night uh, Shyamalan sort of movie here. There's a twist there's a darkness. Eve thinks she is getting something new and better when she already has it. And instead is getting a dark, twisted, upside-down upside world version of it. And the sadness is her descendants continue to do the same, exchanging truth, goodness, and beauty for distorted versions that promise a godlike status. We seek to establish ourselves as gods of our own worlds, depending on ourselves for the knowledge of good and evil. When apart from God, this is an impossibility. This is the deception and destruction that Adam and Eve introduced and that we live in. It continues, there's the actual fall at this point. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice the three things that are going on. This is insightful for the sorts of decision-making that goes on when we choose sin or we choose the good as well, actually. There are three things that, that draw her in. 
she sees that the tree was good for food. It's good. It's good to eat. It's enjoyable food. It's a good thing. It accomplishes a good thing. It, it's, it brings nutrition, satisfaction. But more than that, it's the delight to the eyes. It looks good. Wow, this really looks good. This is an attractive meal here. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it, it, it brings a benefit of, 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 a, of a sense of truth or wisdom here. Historically, philosophers uh, categorize these three aspects of, of anything, really, as, as that which is true, good, and beautiful. That, that all things in creation can be measured this way, and that we all are actually always seeking to maximize the combination of the true, the good, and the beautiful. It's important, I think, to, to recognize that in the story here. And to recognize that that goes on in our own lives. And I think it helps us to understand both sin and goodness and righteousness. And in light of the truths that are here. To, to, to fast forward, we see how God rescues us uh, in the same way with these same three values really in Romans chapter 12. It speaks here in Romans chapter 12 at the end of 11 chapters of God's rescue and restoration of mankind from our sin, of, of this new life in Christ through His death and resurrection, through His, His toning sacrifice to pay for our sins, and His righteous life offered in our stead that, that brings, with us, uh, brings with it new life for us as we trust in Him. There's this new life that we're brought into. Forgiveness and fellowship with God. And, and there's a new way of living and so Romans 12 and then what follows in Romans we went through this recently instructs us on what this new life looks like. And as it begins to instruct us, it says this in chapter 12 verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. The same three things, more or less, of what's going on with Eve. What's good, what's acceptable, the, uh, I think a better translation is what's well-pleasing and perfect. Perfect and complete is the idea here. And that lines up with the good, the beautiful, and the true. And so what we see going on here is God's pathway of redemption. Just as the pathway to sin is to consider these three things and think that somehow in sin you're maximizing that which is true, apparently, seems good and is attractive, is beautiful. To recognize, no, God said that's not the case. I depend on God and now I engage in His ways and by testing I learn, yes, indeed, actually, this is what is true and good and beautiful. This is the pathway to a transformed life. As our minds are renewed and as we obey, we test and we see, wow, he's right. This is good. This is true. This is beautiful. I think that's important to understand and to realize that God is the one who, who rightly tells us those things and, and what we're called to is to believe him, to embrace these things and to obey battle often is to perceive and pursue that which is thoroughly true, completely good, and ultimately beautiful, and only the Lord can tell us that. We, we know this by believing and obeying God, despite what the serpents, or Madonna, or anyone else might say. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, formerly an English professor at Syracuse University, tenured a militant feminist, committed lesbian, who left all that to follow Christ, shares the following on how she learned 
to do this. She shares in her book, um, Openness Unhindered, she says, what about homosexuality? Did I ever get some special insight from the Holy Spirit as to why it is a sin? Did I immediately upon conversion or ever feel that, quote, unnaturalness about homosexual sin that Romans 1 outlines? The sinfulness of sin unfolded for me in the authority of the Bible. The growing sweetness with my union with Christ and the slow sanctification of the mind that this births. At a certain point in life, I knew that I had to turn over the wheel to God, a little like an Alzheimer's patient who, in a flashing moment of mental lucidity, signs over his rights to the able-minded caregiver. A believer signs over her rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. Lesbian sexuality did not feel unnatural. It occurred to me that I don't have to feel it, to believe it. And then this opened up the scriptures in a whole new way. My feelings fell with the fall. There is no shame in this. Our feelings can and often do deceive us. When we believe that our sin is not really sin, we call God a liar. And we use our personal feelings as proof. All our personal feelings prove is that original sin and the deceptiveness of sin are inseparable. Let us trust God and His evaluation of what is true, good, and beautiful. Above what we think on our own, let us run to Jesus and this wonderful union and the power of it to resist determining ourselves what is true, good, and beautiful, but instead to trust and obey. Continuing the story, uh, it's important to notice another problem going on in this interaction as Eve falls. The serpent is interacting with Eve while someone else is lurking in the background, right? There's someone lurking in the background, another character. We actually know his name. He shows up in verse 6. His name is Adam. He was the one who was called, right, to work and to keep the garden chiefly with his wife's important help. And we learned that keeping the garden actually meant guarding the garden. He was supposed to uphold his covenant with God by enjoying all uh, his blessings and abstaining from this fruit. He was appointed as head over his wife, the helper. And, and she was not made to lead in his place, but to support his leadership. Yet in the story, he's passive. He's falling under the deception of the devil himself by refusing to step up and guard his wife and guard the garden from this falsehood. His fall includes more than just accepting the forbidden fruit from his wife. It involves sorry, abdicating his God-given role to lead, protect, and provide. This is, by the way, why the New Testament writings on male leadership in the family or the church quotes Genesis 2 and 3 because this story illustrates the importance of God's order and design. And it is a common sin of men today to abdicate their call to keep and guard what God has given us. Men often fail to provide and protect and create an atmosphere where 
women's giftedness can flourish. Often men crush women's contributions and leave them to struggle alone. But this is not how it ought to be. And in Christ, we are given forgiveness in a new life and He redeems us and He leads men to follow His lead as the ultimate man and laying down His life for others. For protecting and creating an atmosphere and a context for flourishing in life that, that women and all others would bring. Yet the man here fails in this. Well, verse 7 tells us the results, both the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, we talked about this last week. I don't think they missed the fact that they were physically naked. Naked, that's pretty obvious. But they realized that there's a spiritual nakedness that goes alongside of that. That without the Lord, they are bankrupt. They are vulnerable. They are degraded. They are undignified. They are ashamed, bereft of peace and the blessing of God. And that's what they realized. They realized how pitiful and impoverished they were without God. And so they're, they're afraid, they're naked and afraid because of their spiritual and physical nakedness that goes along with that. And they seek to cover themselves. They seek to hide from God. And it says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And again, I talked about the other week that it's the covenantal name of God throughout this passage Yahweh God, who calls us into covenant. And so they hear the sound of, of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and, and, and panic ensues, right? There's a mad rush to hide behind some trees somehow. They think they can hide. Uh, it's kind of comical, actually. It's sad. It's comical. They're like two ostriches burying their heads in the sand, thinking, if I can hide behind this tree, God won't see me. God sees all. You can run but you can't hide from God. He is God. He sees all. He knows all. He is omnipresent. We can't do anything without Him knowing it fully in all of its details. All of our thoughts are known to Him. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Nothing. You can never hide from God. And yet we run and run and run, don't we? And we act just like Adam and Eve in all of its sad comedy. And it's good to know, though, though we have every reason to be naked and afraid before our holy God, He doesn't pursue us to bring judgment, though He has every right to. And He will bring judgment on the final day for each and every one of us. But His desire is one of mercy. He desires our salvation. And so what does he do when he comes in the garden? He could have just followed through on his promise. He said the day that you eat it, you will die. And certainly right away we see it in the story. There's a spiritual death that they've already gone through. There's this brokenness, this sad uh, transformation of, their, of everything. They are in spiritual death at this point, but God doesn't come to incinerate them. He doesn't call down fire and thunder. He doesn't ridicule them and their ridiculous behavior. He calls out, where are you? He knows where they are. And yet he pursues. And we will see in 
the rest of the Bible as we go through Genesis, a God who keeps on pursuing mankind as mankind runs away again and again. God is the hero who rescues the rebels here in this story and throughout the Bible. He says, where are you? He pursues the man. He chases after him. And he asks him, the man answers him that he was naked and afraid. He heard, heard him in the garden. And by the way, actually, it's just a little side point here. Uh, it says that uh, they, they were afraid. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and, and so it was a regular part of them being in the garden to walk with God. This, the way that it's phrased is this was their normal experience. And in the cool of the day, in the ancient Near East would have been in the latter afternoon, early evening. And so they had the privilege, actually, of, of this sort of fellowship to be with the Lord, to walk with Him in the garden, to enjoy Him in all of His goodness and glory, to have fellowship and relationship with Him. And, 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 and that's the amazing privilege of mankind that, that we're made for the Lord in this way. And this is what God comes to restore through Christ for us, by the way so that we can walk with God. And this is the promise of eternity when Christ comes to, uh, to renew the earth and all creation, that we will walk with God in the cool of the day in his, all of His goodness and glory forever and ever. Sadly, Adam and Eve chose to give this up for a false promise. And so Adam says, I, uh, I was afraid. I was afraid because I, we heard you and I knew I was naked. And so God asked, how do you... Uh, who told you that you're naked in this way? And then, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So God goes after what's going on. And it's interesting to notice what Adam does. Again, this is what sin looks like and how sin behaves. What's his answer? He tells him, uh, have, you, have you eaten of... Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit... And now remember, he's called to be the head here. He's called to be responsible uh, as, God's, as God's king and priest, along with his wife, but he's to take leadership. But, but what does he do? Verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. He blames his wife but he actually blames God. It's that woman. There's something wrong with the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. You gave me this woman. And she gave me the fruit. And I ate. It's the first occurrence of someone being thrown under the bus. And he has the audacity to throw God and the woman under the bus. Now the woman... He turns to the woman to find out what she did, and she throws the serpent under the bus. Now, deservedly so, but it was her decision to do it, not the serpent's. As I heard someone say, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. We'll see that later in the story. Well, we're going to continue uh, in this series, and we're seeing the effect, the results, this blame shifting that goes on, the effects of sin, the, to, to blame others. And, and I want to finish with a, an amazing truth here. 
in light of this blame shifting, we have the man and the woman shifting blame off themselves. We have the ultimate man coming on the scene in our storyline who does the opposite. Instead of blame shifting, he does blame taking. Instead of self-determination, he pursues service and submission. This man's name is Jesus. And so in light of this story and the tragedy and the upside-downness of this, listen to the, the story of the ultimate man told by the prophet Isaiah. Speaking of Jesus, the ultimate man, God in the flesh, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We have this to project. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No blame shifting there. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus. The ultimate human. The second Adam. Not the blame shifter, the blame taker. The submitted one. The true worker and keeper of the garden. And he has won forgiveness and reconciliation and new life for any and all who turn from their sin and receive it. Sin deceives and kills us. Jesus rescues and restores us. Ephesians 4 pictures this restoration continuing in our lives saying this in chapter 4, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, the Adam-Eve self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, that new self in Christ, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, be imitators of God, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering 
and sacrifice to God. Sin deceives and kills us. Jesus rescues and restores us. Let us today look freshly on Jesus, turn again from our sin, its deception, its evil, embrace Him as Savior and King, and follow in this new life He grants us through His rescue and restoration. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that we are not left alone to battle Satan and the deception of sin, that You have come to rescue us, to grant us power in new life, to lead us in this new humanity. We thank You for this. I pray by the power of the Spirit, the truth of the good news, and the victory we have over sin through You would, would fill our lives and propel us in love and in mission in You, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.